0: Hello, and welcome to Public Key, the podcast from Chainalysis. This is your host, Ian Andrews. The last two months of the cryptocurrency industry has been filled with DeFi hacks, a major crypto exchange collapse, and industry-wide fear, uncertainty, and doubt. But what if some of that uncertainty could have been proactively identified and some of the risks mitigated? In this episode, I sit down with Nick Cannon, VP of Growth at Gauntlet. We talk about their financial modeling platform that uses techniques from the algorithmic trading industry to improve DeFi protocol risk management. Nick shares how Gauntlet helped DeFi pioneer Ave improve protocol revenue without taking on additional risk and how they were early to recommend customers not accept tokens like Terra UST and FTX's FTT. And after the episode, if you're looking for the latest on the FTX situation, head to the Chainalysis blog or our Twitter account. Both are linked in the show notes. This week I'm joined by Nick Cannon, VP of Growth at Gauntlet. Nick, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much. Hopefully the markets will pause for a little bit so we can chat.
0: You know, I get to turn on Do Not Disturb when I record these, which is a nicer spite because I get to hide all the alerts coming from Twitter and all the apps telling me about the uh, intraday trading prices of both the equities markets and the crypto market. It's a nice moment of relaxation. I, uh, I've i been following your company Gauntlet for a while. We got connected where a lot of the guests on the show start on Twitter, but I, I have a sense that not, not a whole lot of our listeners know what you all are building at Gauntlet. Maybe we can start with Just a quick overview on the company, the technology. What are you guys up to?
1: Gauntlet is a financial modeling platform, the founders of which come from using battle tested techniques from the algo trading industry. And what we're really trying to do is inform on-chain protocol management with off chain optimization and simulation primarily.
0: There's a lot of, in there to unpack, which we'll definitely get into in the episode. So algo trading, so these are like if people have seen the movie Flash Boys or read the Michael Lewis book, like it's that world of complex high-frequency trading, a lot of systemic, not days of old, with folks you know standing in the uh, the equities pit at the New York Stock Exchange trading shares. This is high-tech stuff. How does that lead into the world of crypto?
1: The framing is really good because everyone in crypto or in DeFi or any protocol or participant is actually in an adversarial environment, right? Or they should at least know they are. Hopefully they know by now they are operating in one. And this includes not just like you and me as potentially, you know, retail users or traders or whoever. But of course, the other investors, also like the borrowers and lenders of a lot of these DeFi protocols, but also the protocols themselves, right? They're, this is open code and permissionless and anyone can use it at any time. So they need to be designed and parameterized sort of according to that thesis.
0: That makes a lot of sense. I mean, they it's been kind of interesting over the last few months as people have been suggesting, hey, the future of finance is not just crypto, it's actually DeFi, these programmable systems. I've always taken a little bit of issue with that in that I think about the way most people use the financial system. You might have a credit card, you probably have a checking account with direct deposit, maybe you have a mortgage or a car loan. That's the vast majority of people in the United States and their interaction with the financial system. When I venture into the world of DeFi, it's quite a bit more complex than that. The average financial services consumer, this is still quite a bit beyond them. But I think when you come from the world of finance, obviously that is what DeFi is rebuilding. I mean, would you agree with that sentiment?
1: Largely, yeah. And I think a lot of what's interesting you know, for myself as separate of Gauntlet is like the access, right? A young 19 year old or back in my yay day, like wanting to use a lot of these projects or, or try to invest, right? But I'm not an accredited investor and I can't use them and I have no access to prime brokerage or anything like that. And now with DeFi, you can. And what you see is like the super fluid collateral or, or as it's called, or just the general composability of, hey, here's an asset. We can put it in a smart contract and put it in a vault. And what can we do? How can we make this better? A lot of bad ideas, but some really interesting ones as well.
0: Yeah, it's incredibly powerful. I mean, the programmability of Ethereum was one of the first things I really got excited about uh, as I came into the world of crypto about two years ago. It, it just looked like almost endless potential there. And going back to Gauntlet a little bit, when I look at your website, I see really the who's who list of DeFi protocols for your customers. Talk a little bit about what they're using your platform for. You mentioned this simulation and modeling. Take us a little deeper into the some of the use cases.
1: We can zoom out or zoom back, I guess, to the, the start of Gauntlet about four years ago, uh, where True and Ray sort of came from high-frequency trading and traditional finance to try to build this protocol platform. And we're really doing R and D in public with you know these who's who, the compound, the obvious of the world, trying to find our footing. What business model made sense? What did they want? Where could we drive impact? The first couple of years of which we did risk assessments, looking into the deep into the protocol architecture, simulating the environment off chain, and then you know running our models against who we thought would act on the protocol's behalf: the liquidators, the borrowers, the lenders. Two learnings from that, I guess, the, the primary one, you know, why we've been able to sort of stay with these projects and these who's who for so long is that we can't drive impact to them long term as they evolve. With the underlying changing so much, the developments of the protocol is still in, you know, numerous iterations of MVP mode. We wanted to turn that, you know, one-off assessment like approach to a platform that could drive impact, hopefully as this sector continues to grow
0: i read one of your recent blog, we'll link to this in the show notes. It was talking about some of the work that you've been doing with Aave over the last year. And it, it looked like through a number of governance proposals, you had helped to adjust the liquidation thresholds across a number of assets. And the conclusion of the blog is we were able to do this, which leads to greater protocol revenue, right? Interest earned as a result of lending and doing that without creating additional risk. And to my layperson mind, that seemed counterintuitive. We can increase basically the credit threshold. This is like, you know, my credit card going from $15,000 limit to $100,000 limit. So I buy more stuff. I pay more interest. It seems like that would introduce more risk. But you actually concluded the opposite in the blog. Can you talk a little bit about the work you did there and and how we got to that outcome?
1: A lot of the Loan to value parameters and, as you mentioned, liquidation thresholds were set statically and primarily for Ave when you know the V2 deployment had launched uh, about a year and change ago. Not surprisingly, the market has matured significantly since then. More liquidity, more professional market makers and liquidators to make sure you know those collateral requirements when there is a chance of insolvency to sort of sure up the position and prevent that. They're incentivized to do so, and being able to understand that ecosystem and sort of the developments there as we actually have you know empirical data for a good amount of time able to improve that capital efficiency which again to your point not adding value at risk now of course there's a ceiling to that right and environments that we're in right now there's also risk off environments where we potentially have to go in the opposite direction uh, but for the past you know year and change or so have been able to you know improve or lower the collateral requirements for majority of the users while adding almost very little risk to the protocol
0: It's pretty amazing. But as you describe it, it makes a lot of sense, right? This, you know, we're taking more of an active measurement approach versus a static limit or threshold that I'm guessing, you know, early days of the protocol, it's a little bit of guessing. You don't have historical data on performance. And so you pick numbers that make sense, that feel safe. And then as you develop historical data, you can start to optimize is that the core of what the Gauntlet platform is doing is collecting this historical data? And are you in a position where you're able to start adjusting things like liquidation thresholds more actively? I'm, I'm guessing you probably wouldn't do that real time, but is it a constant re, readjustment of some of these levers across the protocol?
1: It can be, and um, a lot of this is throttled by currently protocol governance, which in a decentralized, you know, nature in in crypto and blockchains is purposely slow. There are starting to be more levers and mechanisms built for someone like us to participate and have sort of a direct access to a liquidation threshold without touching any other levers in the protocol, like the treasury or the collateral assets or things like that, so that's improving. But yeah, getting closer to real-time is better, right? Um, And can we do that in a safe way and design mechanisms in a safe way to uh, make that the case, because these markets are always on more so than pretty much any market that has ever existed. So it's pretty near and dear to us. A faster path for governance and, and safe governance is definitely important.
0: And I think for people that are maybe a little outside of the DeFi universe, the interesting flip framing in this blog that I referenced was, I think it opened with Gauntlet's made 17 proposals over roughly the last year to the Aave Protocol. So the natural instinct would be, oh, you're, you're a vendor. Effectively to Aave, you're helping the team that has developed the protocol kind of adjust parameters to to optimize capital efficiency, minimize risk, something along those lines. But you're actually taking each one of the proposals, and I think it was asset by asset, through a governance vote. So everybody that holds an an Aave governance token gets a say in whether or not they trust what Gauntlet is simulated and assessed. Is that how that actually works in practice?
1: Yeah, and like if you think of technology or you know, business-to-business like model, where you have a service agreement, uh, which Aave and the community agreed to pay us about a year ago or so, and then go and implement that. Right, you try to drive value to the company or the project that you're working with. The case in you know DeFi and for Gauntlet specifically, with relation to Aave is we have to make that case every week or every two weeks or whenever we're making those risk parameter changes. Does this make sense to the community's updated risk appetite or profile or the developments that they're trying to target or the KPIs they're trying to target? Uh, It's sort of an always-on political election cycle. I mean, there are actual votes. Um, And while some of them aren't tied to, you know, a majority of them aren't tied to revenue for us, uh, we do need to make a case for changing parameters on hundreds of millions and billions of dollars, as maybe it should be.
0: It's such an unusual model for operating because I think by bringing the community in, the increased transparency I think is something that most people in crypto value highly. But in doing so, you're, you're inevitably bringing people that are less expert. If you're not a full, full-time at Gauntlet or full-time working on the protocol, the amount of knowledge that you're going to have probably drops off pretty rapidly until you end up at my level. Where I'm casually aware that Ave exists, but couldn't really explain the mechanics at any sort of a deep level. Yet, if I have the governance token, I I get to vote right up next to the the experts who built the system in the first place.
1: Uh, you're highlighting a problem that we definitely feel day to day, and and you know this is something we want to get better at. But the personas and the users, or you know, I guess stakeholders, are so vast and broad, more more so than anywhere. Right? There really is no customer or like client. There's this DAO who has a community where it's you, me, retail person, anonymous person, developers or builders in the team, and then you know the the sort of the whales, so to speak, of the VCs, the large investors, who all of which have like different objectives, time horizons, things like that. How can we make sure we're not dumbing it down too much or ELI-fiving the explanations too much, but making sure, you know, risk is properly managed according to what our model and, and sort of platforms say? The
0: closest thing I can think of that is is related is like the open source software movement, where again, you have this model of build in public, but the difference here is there's very much real money at stake, right? We're not arguing about a protocol implementation at a software code level alone. Like we are having that technical discussion, but on the other side of it is millions or t- tens of millions of dollars of assets in play that could potentially be affected. So it's, it certainly raises the stakes.
1: The stakes are very high. Uh, <laughs> and you know, the transparency is interesting where might is very obviously helpful for open source, like Development and code development, right? Peer reviewed things like that. When the markets are always on, and we see potential exploits or risks in the protocol, exposing them with a three to seven day delay presents an attack vector. How do you go about doing that cautiously while also, you know, informing the stakeholders that need to know? There's a tough line of communication and, and trade off there.
0: How much of the Gauntlet platform is looking at? the financial simulation versus other potential risk factors. Like is, is security in the domain and scope of what you're doing with the platform or is that left to other tools and systems?
1: Other tools and systems primarily. So, you know, the first to come being the smart contract auditors. We really won't touch any protocol that isn't code complete and audited by, you know, someone like Open Zeppelin of the world who are starting to engage in similar models with projects like Aave uh, where it's ongoing, right? Codes being deployed all the time. You need to make sure it's lockstop as much as possible and there's no bugs or or attack vectors there. Anything sort of economic risk uh, is sort of in our purview though.
0: Shifting gears a little bit, obviously... This year, we've seen massive amount of losses. And I think the term that I keep hearing come up over and over again is, is counterparty risk. Or maybe more specifically, firms' inability to measure or understand their their own counterparty risk. And then after we see a failure, it's like everybody scrambles to understand, you know, do they have assets involved in a firm that collapsed? Or do they have potentially some business relationship with somebody who's highly exposed? One of the responses that I, I've seen... Pop up a lot lately by the the talking heads I follow on Twitter is well, the transparency of DeFi solves for this, right? The counterparty risk exists because these centralized firms are doing all this financial activity off chain. If we were all just using DeFi, like we wouldn't have this problem. That strikes me as a little too simplistic. Like, any thoughts on that? I have to think that this is an area that, oh, well, spending a lot of time looking at things.
1: It's definitely a little too simplistic, but for the most cases, it is true. For over-collateralized lending protocols like Aave, Compound, and Maker, they're the first ones to get paid back by FTX or Three Arrows Capital or these where the counterparty risk is starting to show its head. Um, and they actually have been uh, because they're incentivized to do so or they'll lose more money if they don't. Uh, so that transparency is helpful. You don't have to take and our simulation platform doesn't have to take the doing assumptions like what credit they have somewhere else or off chain or what's in their bank account. We know what we can see on chain and how a liquidator will react should that loan position come up for liquidation.
0: I noticed uh, reviewing some of the material on your website, one of the features of the platform is called the gauntlet risk desk, which got me intrigued. I didn't see a lot of detail on what that was, but I'm curious, like, how does that fit into the, the simulation model? Are you doing active risk analysis for your customers? The scope
1: continuously expands, as you can imagine. Um, New attack vectors every day. And as we start to think about, hey, we have this platform that's always on and and we're updating the the risk dashboards tailored for each project daily. But of course, we need on-call and and continuous alert because there are some fast paths to governance. There's guardian roles and things like that. There are minimal circuit breakers, but there are some. And uh, if we can catch some of those quicker, that is helpful.
0: And so is the risk desk like a team of people that are combined with your technology? Is that, is that what's going on there? Or is it just a software layer that other people are, are using?
1: No, yeah, it's definitely not just products, tons of services and people sort of in the middle, you know, not just on the sort of the risk test side, but also in the governance forums, you know, to your point, like we have to push the conversation and sort of drive the conversation in the community forums and things like that to get these executable payloads with changes to liquidation threshold through governance. And there's people involved at at numerous steps uh, along the way.
0: Amazing. One of the other questions I had for you is we've seen a couple attacks this year in the world of DeFi where the attacker or trader, depending on your perspective on this, kind of targets an asset that has relatively low liquidity and where with a modest amount of capital, you can manipulate a price oracle, often via a flash loan. So they're not even having to put up that much of their own own collateral at risk, manipulate the flash loan, and then capture a massive return. Like we saw this with Mango. Mango Markets is probably the the most recent, maybe one of the largest that I can think of. And ultimately, in that case, the, the Treasury ended up awarding the, the trader a, a fairly large Entitled Bug Bounty. And I, I think there was a lot of controversy around even terming that a bug bounty because it wasn't a flaw necessarily in the core protocol. It was simply manipulation of, a, of an oracle, it was largely the flaw, I think, there where you, you just had mispriced asset value. How do you think about that entire kind of category of tactics? And does Gauntlet tackle any of the challenges there related to, to price manipulation?
1: Uh, yes, definitely so. Mango definitely highlighted one we've been concerned about for a while and maybe has changed the risk appetite for a lot of the DAOs that we work with. And it wasn't just an oracle issue, right? Largely the you know, oracle functioned as it was designed. There's a couple problems. The, the, the first problem being the mango token, which was used to sort of inflate and then borrow you know, stable coins and ETH and USDC had no sort of cap on the limit positioning or auto deleveraging, right? So having a half a billion dollar worth of unrealized PNL for a very illiquid token is bad. Um, And that should never be allowed to happen. The risk parameters, again, were static. They were used initially to bootstrap the market, which a lot of protocols do, right? They use their native token to bootstrap markets, and then they never change them because it's the framing, if it's not broke, don't fix it, but it is sort of broke or can break very quickly and very badly. the second issue being the insurance fund. So this bounty that was paid out at roughly half of the 116 or so million dollar exploit was used to shore up the insolvency losses of those users. And unfortunately, despite being a user uh, insurance fund, it was denominated in the native governance token, which subsequently crashed after the exploit, not surprisingly, because as much as, you know, the protocol and sort of the team wanted to hedge that, getting through decentralized consensus is hard and governance uh, is hard. And what is the goal there? What's, like mechanism can you actually use to sort of dynamically track the liabilities that the markets within the protocol have? Um, and there really is no tool to do that. So it's usually just stood up uh, with an allocation of the initial token supply, um, and it just sort of sits there as a rainy day fund, but that rainy day fund is unfortunately very correlated to the success or failure of the project and the protocol and the markets that it's associated with.
0: And in that case, had they been using something like Go- We don't even have to be specific to Mango. Like, we can talk kind of the generic case. I don't want to test that team or pick on them specifically. But, like, had they been using Gauntlet, it would have basically, your platform would have flagged that there was risk on the limits of the amount of Mango token that I could borrow, or the, the protocol token in this case, and basically capped lending. Is that the right way to think about it, or am I being too simplistic
1: there? No, exactly right. right. And you scale that with how much liquidity and volatility and slippage are uh, associated with each individual token. You can't Anything that has sort of cross-platform collateral or can be used as cross-platform collateral, whether in a perpetual market like Mango, or a lending market has sort of this systemic level risk and it needs to be sort of calibrated accordingly. It shouldn't have the same sort of collateral requirements or even better than, you know, something like ETH or a stablecoin, right? And you wanna encourage growth there, right? And let, and let that token value grow. But unfortunately, if, you're, if someone's not managing that, you're, you either have to be way too conservative and, and that sort of hinders your growth or way too risky on the other side.
0: So again the, the active management benefit seems like a huge one here. I've spent a lot of time as I'm sure many of our listeners have reading about FTX. And in retrospect it seems like one of the big errors everyone might have made or or a lot of people was treating FTT as valuable collateral or or at least you know treating it as as maybe low risk and taking the you know relatively illiquid asset held by a small number of parties Um, and treating it as, you know, as safe as, as some of the more popular, um, assets in the crypto space. Do you guys look at asset quality? Are you making recommendations on what should, should and shouldn't go on one of your, your customers' platforms? We are, and
1: we blocked FTT and UST for quite a long time for a number of different projects. This characterization largely goes towards like centralized exchanges or you know whatever counterparties FTX had using FTT. Um, a few smaller DeFi protocols used FTT as collateral, and of course FTX exploited that in in a similar fashion, but. Any project that we're sort of associated with, yeah, we're, we see the low float and limited liquidity of, of this token, and you can't mark to market it just because it has a fully diluted valuation of X billion.
0: I would imagine there's a couple of people listening right now that wish they, they were using Gauntlet so they got that same, same alert uh, sooner rather than later.
1: Yeah, it's weird to be proactive in the space and then not try to say, I told you so. But what we want to hopefully, you know, if anything we can take away as like a sector or an industry from these events, really, there are different expertise in different spots. And we want to see this sector grow as much as the next person. Uh, We're taking plenty of bets on it ourselves, but we, we need to think smarter about risk generally is our stance.
0: system to grow, but it can't be on the back of kind of empty promises, outright fraud in the case of what's going on in FTX. I'm curious, one of the reactions I've we've seen a lot of the uh, major exchanges talk about is offering this proof of reserve statement. Here's everything I've got. Here's a point in time snapshot. You can see all the wallet addresses where we've got our, our assets held in cold storage, that feels a little incomplete to me. And, you know, at a minimum, it's sort of like, well, assets without liabilities. But I I even think about operating expenditure. Like a lot of the people who are making these statements have massive operating spend above and beyond. And there's quite a lot in all of their businesses that happen entirely off chain. So Only looking at the the on-chain piece of it seems like you're looking through a keyhole into a room. How do you all think about that at Like, Is there a better solution that we should be charging toward here that maybe you've already built or that we should be collectively building to as an industry?
1: We haven't built anything collectively and we want to lean towards a lot of this ourselves, right we model value at risk and these are off-chain optimizations and we can sort of do data dumps for these communities and say like this is sort of how we did our calculation try to model it yourself of course it's extremely complex and we have 50 people building this thing so we don't particularly expect that to happen But can we have zero knowledge proofs of liabilities or, in our case, value at risk of what we're modeling to to sort of put our money where our mouth is and sort of say, like, here's all sides of the balance sheet or all sides of the equation of how we're coming to these conclusions. Hopefully, there's promising solutions in in the near future. And a lot of the people working on ZK are are sort of striding towards that. So I think that's most promising. Now, will centralized exchanges be the first ones to deploy these things? Probably not. But uh, if we get an opportunity, we definitely will.
0: It's an interesting because I can see the counter argument of why you wouldn't want to expose that, right? Like if you're a privately held company, the benefit is you don't have to fully open up the inner workings of your business. You don't share a full balance sheet. You don't know what you paid for a sponsorship or how much you're spending on employee expenses. But if I think about the you know major players, particularly those that have retail exposure in the traditional financial services sector... For the most part, they're publicly traded companies. So they're both highly regulated and there's this transparent and verifiable nature to the financial structure of the interaction. And I've been wrestling with like, well, is that the level of detail that we should get to with players, particularly those that are retail user exposed in the crypto ecosystem, even before they are a public offering on a stock exchange. I think I like the idea of the transparency, but I don't know if that's taking it too far where it's unfair to the business and kind of putting too much transparency around them.
1: I'm optimistic that we won't need like regulation to like force this to happen, right? The last one to do it or the last handful to do it will be quickly sort of out of business or out of usage Um, and sort of the marketing kick, to be honest, that someone can say, but like here, look at this is all of our assets, all of our liabilities. And this is generally, you know, our OPEX will be the one to see the traction and growth. And hopefully we see sort of more of that well ahead of anything like IPO Now on the other side of that in decentralized finance, where everything is open and everything's, you know, in a reserve and you see where it's paid out. You're starting to see a trend towards more sort of sub-DAOs or or groups, working groups and councils and committees to give more latitude so every single vote or every single decision doesn't have to go through sort of the public forum, which is definitely beneficial and will speed up a lot of the burdens that we maybe over-indexed to solve for.
0: I'm looking forward to it. The greater transparency, I think you're right. It it will drive user adoption and behavior for sure. Different topic. There's a really interesting blog on your site that talks about interest rate curve optimization. And the reason why it it stuck with me is I was explaining the the Terra Luna collapse to somebody the other day. And and I mentioned Anchor Protocol was this lending platform that was offering sort of 20% annual percentage yield rates to anyone who deposited assets into Anchor. And the reaction was like 20%? And this was you know, back in the spring. How are you doing that? That seems unsustainable. And it's like, well, yeah, absolutely. It was a, it was politely termed a promotional rate, but it was clearly unsustainable It was being funded by the Terra Luna ecosystem out of their treasury. But it created, it seemed like this crazy growth engine runaway growth in some ways. And then quick, as quickly as it grew, it sort of blew up in everyone's face. And we saw billions of value evaporate overnight. As you look at this feature of, of your platform for interest rate curve optimization, like where does that send the market? Are or, or the days of the double digit APYs, are they gone forever? Can the users of the DeFi DGens who are chasing, chasing crazy yields with super high risk, does that go away, do you think? Or wh- where's the future of this for the market?
1: It probably goes away for the protocols that are, you know, maybe properly calibrating risk likely not go away for those that are sort of sweeping that under the rug. But yeah, interest rates and sort of our optimization work around that is just another component of, you know, the risk parameters we're already tuning, right? Everything has sort of first and second order impacts and feedback loops. If you change a liquidation threshold, where does it track utilization or usage of that market uh, for the users and their interests? How does it sort of weight against other markets or competitive markets? There's just a, a very tight feedback loop where you can't really avoid it uh, and it's more of a holistic approach to, to risk management, especially to your point, as people are tracking higher yield and what you see in a lot of interest rate curve changes today is saying there's a better way to get a higher APY for users and this will attract more growth. But the question most people aren't asking is how does this affect the the value or risk of the protocol overall?
0: You know, I think in the case of Anchor, like there was very little lending activity happening on the other side. Like there was no business sustainability there. If you imagine, you know, my simplistic borrowing lending business concept, like if you're paying at 20% on one side, you've got to be earning greater than 20% on the other side. Otherwise you're just burning capital indefinitely. It seemed like it would be a perfect fit for what Gauntlet's doing with these kind of uh, active protocol management features.
1: It's definitely one thing to bootstrap growth, but if you don't see—and we say this word a lot internally—and and maybe in our, our you know, public-facing content is elasticity. If you don't see the elasticity, you know, where the stickiness is of your users, then there's not really a sustainable model there.
0: Well, Nick, any closing thoughts for us? Like, where does this whole thing go in the future? What are you—what are you excited about coming out of the Gauntlet team or or in the DeFi market in general?
1: We recently launched Aero Protocol, which is a autonomous, risk-aware, data-driven treasury management protocol. So in the cases of Mango or others where their insurance fund or insolvency fund is denominated largely in their governance token, we can now try to hedge against those liabilities to give you know, not only more transparency, but ability for users to improve and have better capital efficiency on you know, the projects they're already using.
0: Now, that sounds like something I'm going to have to spend some time reading about. Incredibly powerful. really appreciate you taking the time today, Nick. This was uh, this was a great episode. We touched on a lot of stuff that I think listeners have been wondering about or worrying about in the, in the markets, and uh, it seems like oh, it's got some awesome solutions. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Hey there. Thanks for listening to another episode of Public Key. If you enjoyed it, leave me a review or share it on your favorite social platform. Now, I'm really excited to share that the newest product in the Chainalysis portfolio has reached general availability, and it couldn't come at a more important moment, as everyone in crypto is looking for more transparency and verifiability. We bring you Storyline. Built for the world of smart contracts, DeFi, and Web3, Storyline enables you to understand, investigate, and communicate the meaning behind on-chain transactions. For more information, head to the show notes, and don't forget to sign up for our upcoming webinar series.